Welcome back. We're grateful that you're here tonight. We are thankful for the opportunity to be together to worship God. We had a number of folks that were out this morning, and some are sick, some are traveling, and so we want to keep them in our prayers. But we are grateful that you're here tonight. We're looking in our study tonight at Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. We are coming to the close of this year, as well as the close of our series on great chapters in Scripture. Uh, I said, well actually I've mentioned the last couple of weeks the fact that we're going to be looking at Bible characters next year, the Lord willing. And Jared and I hope to have that finalized. We have a list and I think we've pretty well identified the people that we want to focus in on over the next year. But we will have that, uh, we'll have that for you by next week. So if I tell you that, then I've got to do it. So we'll have it for you next week. We are thankful that you're here tonight. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 1. And of course, John is the writer here. John the Apostle, one of the close associates of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John, you remember, formed a very close association with the Lord, along with his brother James, and then Peter. And they had the opportunity to spend considerable time with the Lord. They had the opportunity to see some things that no doubt left a profound impression upon their lives. And so as we look at Revelation chapter 1, what I want us to do tonight is to think about the theme, the majesty and splendor of Jesus. And really the New Testament, well, and we could even say the Old Testament. The Old Testament points to the coming of the Messiah, the Christ. And threaded throughout the Old Testament is the majesty and the splendor of the Christ who would come. The New Testament is an affirmation that the Lord Jesus Christ is majestic, and no doubt we stand in awe of His splendor. So tonight we're going to be looking at chapter 1, and I want to begin by first of all talking about His redeeming grace. Now pick up with me if you would, beginning in verse 1. John writes, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants, things which must shortly come to pass. And I think it's critical to note the fact that John is writing about things that will come to pass very soon. And then the text says, He sent and signified it by His angel to His servant John. One well-known Bible scholar concluded that the word signified here carries with it the idea of an optical impression. And we know that John used a number of signs and symbols to convey, as one writer would say, in code, certain things to New Testament Christians, that is, those who were living in the first century. In verse 2 he said, "...who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ." and all things that he saw. Now look at verse 3. Special blessings pronounced upon the one who would read and then those who would hear the words of this prophecy and then finally those who would keep the things which are written in this prophecy. In verse 4, John identifies the audience, that is the people to whom he's writing. He's writing to the seven churches which are in Asia. 
And if you drop down and look at verse 11, he identifies those seven churches in Asia. The Lord said, I'm the Alpha, the Omega. And here you have the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. We might say from A to Z. And he says, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And then he identifies these seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now John is writing from a small island identified in this book as the island of Patmos, which was a very rocky terrain. Matter of fact, some have said that uh, there were no trees on this island. But John was there for the purpose, listen to him in verse 9. He was on this island for the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, Patmos was located about a little less than 25 miles from the shore of Asia Minor. Geographically speaking, it was 70 miles southwest of the city of Ephesus, and then about 40 miles outside of Miletus. And you remember in Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul called for the elders of the church in Ephesus to meet with him in the city of Miletus. And so here we have the geographical location from which John is writing. Now look, if you would, at verse 4. We talk about the redeeming grace of our Lord. John said, Grace to you and peace from Him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. The numeral seven is found some 54 times throughout this book. And the word seven, as used by John here, really carries with the idea, the idea of that which is complete. And so you might just maybe make a notation of that. Now listen to what he says concerning Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. He said, He is the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. The word firstborn signifies the Lord's preeminence and priority over the created world. Matter of fact, the Lord Jesus, you remember the Apostle Paul said, He is the image of the invisible God. In other words, He is the exact repre representation of the Father. Jesus would say in John chapter 14, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to Him who loved us and washed us from our sins, in His own blood. Let me just pause here for a moment. And first of all, talk about the profound love the Lord has for us. Over and over again, and we've stressed this in recent weeks, we have talked about the love of Almighty God. And so, the realization of the love of God, there is a declaration here. And John speaks often about the Lord's love for His people. Matter of fact, in 1 John chapter 4, John said, God is love. In verse 19, John would say, we love Him because He first loved us. And John here speaks to the fact that the Lord loved us. And that is personal in nature, isn't it? And so there is the realization of this love. But then, not just the realization of this love, but the validation how did God validate His love for the human family? Well, John tells us, as do other writers in the New Testament. 
He said that He loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. This signifies His death, doesn't it? The fact that Jesus willingly went to Calvary and paid the ultimate price for our sins. So when we talk about the love of Almighty God and the love of Christ, I think about what Jesus said in John 15. Greater love has no man than this, than a man laid down his life for his friends. Jesus demonstrated His love for us by going to the cross. So whenever you think about the love of God, if somebody were to say to you, prove to me that God loves me, show me something in Scripture that signifies to me that Jesus is concerned about me and loves me genuinely. Just tell them to go to Calvary. Calvary says it all, doesn't it? When Jesus was lifted up, and you think about what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul said, You've heard of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He were rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you through His poverty might be made rich. Jesus left the glory of heaven. He talks about that in John 17. The glory that He enjoyed with God the Father from time eternal. And so that's the one we're talking about. So first you think about His profound love, but then secondly, His power to liberate. Why did Jesus come to earth? Well, John tells us. He loved us and washed us from our sins by His own blood. We talk about the person of redemption. Jesus is the focal point of the redemptive story, isn't He? He was, as we've noted in the past, the agent by which the redemptive plan was brought to fruition. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. I like the words of Paul in Ephesians 1 verse 7. When Paul said, in Him, that is, in Christ we have redemption. Jesus, you remember in John 14, said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by Me. And then Jesus Himself said in Matthew 20, The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister to give His life a ransom for the many. He is the person by which we enjoy redemption today. We ought to be grateful for that. We ought to express our gratitude to God for what Christ has done on our behalf. But now, what about the price of redemption? Our salvation is not cheap by any means, but rather it costs the sinless Son of God His life, His blood, and John said unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood. And the only way that we can appropriate that blood is to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus came as he announced to seek and to save the lost. The Lord Jesus is interested in lost people. And you and I today, we have the opportunity to bask in the blessings of the blood of Jesus. Peter said that we've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. Matter of fact, John in the Revelation talks about the lamb slain from the foundation of the world over in chapter 13 at verse 8. And so Jesus was God's sacrificial lamb. Go all the way back to the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. And that was a type of the salvation that would ultimately be provided through Jesus, our Passover lamb, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
And so we have the person of our redemption, and then secondly, the price of our redemption. Now there's a second thing I want to call attention to in our study. First, we think about His redeeming grace. And again, back in verse 4, John says, Grace to you and peace from Him. Well, without the grace of God, there is no peace. And so when you think about the benefits and the blessings of God's grace, mercy, and love, all of that captured in Revelation chapter 1. But what about His regal government? Well, listen to what John said. Pick up again with me in verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood, and has made us kings and priests, or He's made us a kingdom and a priesthood. So now we're introduced to the spiritual government of our Lord. There's some things that I want to just share with you very quickly about the government of the Lord. And it is a regal government at that. When we talk about the kingdom of God, to understand something about the distinctiveness of this kingdom. And really, this verse right here, accentuates the fact that the Lord is the one who established this kingdom. And the thoughts that come to mind, number one, it is a spiritual kingdom. Number two, it is a singular kingdom. The Lord Jesus only established one kingdom. It is a spiritual entity. Now, the apostles, the disciples in the first century, they were thinking about a material kingdom, weren't they? They had in mind that the Lord was going to come and liberate them from the yoke of Roman bondage. So even following the death of Christ and His resurrection, prior to His ascension to heaven, you remember the apostles asked the Lord in Acts chapter 1, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were thinking about a physical entity, a material kingdom. And I think when James and John approached Jesus and wanted to sit one on His right hand, the other on His left when He came in His kingdom, that's what they were thinking. But the kingdom we're talking about is spiritual in nature. Jesus said, the kingdom of God comes not with observation. Interestingly, we are in the kingdom and the kingdom is within us, isn't it? So the distinctiveness of this kingdom. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus promised to build the church. He only promised to build one church, one kingdom. In verse 19, he said to Peter he would give him the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys signifying authority. And so Peter and the apostles on Pentecost Day, they set forth the terms of admission into this spiritual institution known as the church. Now, what about the duration of this kingdom? You remember back in Daniel chapter 2? Daniel said, in the days of these kings, that is, in the days of the Roman kings, the God of heaven is going to set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. When you make your way over to, into the New Testament, for example, in Matthew chapter 3, we have the work of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was the forerunner to the Christ. John said in John chapter 1, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. John had a heaven-sent mission. He was to point people in the direction of the Christ. And so his message was very succinct. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
This is the very kingdom that Daniel foretold of. Now Daniel, in his interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, talked about four world empires. You remember that? Beginning with Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar was the head of the Babylonian kingdom. That would be followed by the Medes and the Persians, and they would later give way to the Grecian Empire, which then in turn would fall to the Roman Empire. And so Daniel would say, in the days of these kings, that is, in the days of the Roman kings. Now I want you to think about something for a minute. When John wrote the Revelation, they were under Roman kings, weren't they? And the Roman kings, the Roman Caesars, they were vile and godless. And they inflicted much harm on those who belonged to the body of Christ, the Apostle Paul. I think about Paul. Paul was beheaded by Nero Caesar. And yet it was the Apostle Paul who wrote Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and said, I will therefore that prayers, intercessions, the giving of thanks be made for all men. Listen to him. For kings and all who are in authority. Why? That we might live a quiet and peaceable life in the sight of God. Who would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So Paul here in this context in about A.D. 67, 68, writing to Timothy is saying, I want you to pray for those who are in rulership positions. Well, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, don't they? And God can use kingdoms. He has in the past. God has the ability to use the kingdoms of men for His purpose and His glory. And so back up with me if you would and look at something. In verse 5, John said that Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now I know that there are, there are positions of power throughout our land. In our country we have a president. In England they have their queen. And yet there is one who occupies a greater throne, a higher throne. And that's God. And what John is saying here is that Jesus is not only the ruler over that spiritual institution, but He is the ruler over material institutions as well. Now, can God use evil, ungodly people to accomplish His will and His purpose? Sure can. You know, you look around in our country today and you think about the state of our nation, the state of our nation. And it's hard to have faith in those who are leading our nation in many respects. But the bottom line is this. They may think they're in control, but I can tell you there is one who is in absolute control. And that's God. And God is the one who controls all things. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let's just make very quickly an excursus back to the Old Testament. Go back to the book of Habakkuk, if you would. Habakkuk is probably one of the, the lesser-known prophets. In Habakkuk chapter 1, Habakkuk is writing and expressing concern because the children of Israel are not living as they should. And so listen to what he says, beginning in verse 1. The burden 
which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me, their strife and contention arises. He said, the law is powerless, justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Does that sound familiar to you? Does it sound like modern day America in many respects? You know, when you look back at history, you see that the history of man has been problematic for one reason. It's called sin, isn't it? And so, listen now to what the prophet said. Look at verse 5. And this is God. God is speaking now. And God is going to respond to Habakkuk's cry concerning the children of Israel. He said, Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told to you. Now look at verse 6. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. He said, their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. Verse 9, he said, they all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princesses are scorned by them. They deride Every stronghold, for they heap up mounds of earth and seize it. What's Habakkuk saying here? What's God saying, more importantly? God is saying, let me tell you what, if you think that my people are going to get by living like they are, then I've got news for you. And God is saying, there is a nation to the north, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, and I'm going to use them as a rod of judgment to come down and to punish my people. Well, that raised a dilemma in the mind of Habakkuk. Because now Habakkuk's like, well, if that be the case, how can you use a nation more ungodly than your own people to punish them? And the gist is this. God would use the Babylonians to punish His people, Israel. And then He would turn around and punish the Babylonians. So God has the ability to use rulers and nations for His purpose and His glory. And you look back at the Jewish nation. When God destroyed the nation, or really Jerusalem, and sacked the temple and destroyed the temple, who did he use? Do you remember? He used the Romans, didn't he? And so God has that kind of power. So when John writes here in the Revelation, John is saying, look, you need to understand something. That Jesus is the king over his kingdom, and that kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. Jesus said before Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, he said, then would my servants fight. 
But he said, not only is he the king over a spiritual kingdom, but you need to understand that he is the king over all kings. He is the ruler over all rulers. Is that true today? Yes, it is. Is God in absolute control? Yes, He is. And when I look around and I wonder about the future of our nation, when I see things that are going on that I know are not right in our nation, I need to understand that my faith needs to be in the God of heaven and not in political parties. Political parties, they come, they go, but God in heaven is sovereign. And God can work all things to the counsel of His will, can He not? Sure can. So, bottom line is this, as children of God, God's in control. As the psalmist said in Psalm 99 many years ago, the Lord reigns. He is in absolute control. I think we need to remember that from time to time. So, having said that, we talk about the distinctiveness of this kingdom, the duration of this kingdom, and then note, if you would, the duties that are inherent in this kingdom. John said he's made us a kingdom and a priesthood. To his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So as children of God, we are a priesthood of believers, are we not? Under the old covenant, to serve as a priest from the tribe of Levi. Do you think that that carried a certain amount of, we might say, cachet? Do you think that it was an honor to serve as a priest on behalf of Almighty God? I think it would have been a tremendous honor. And yet what John is saying is that God has made a spiritual kingdom. Inherent in that spiritual kingdom is a priesthood of believers. And priests do what? They offer sacrifices, don't they? So as children of God, do we not have the opportunity to render up to God spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ? That's what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Peter would say, you're an elect race. And then he said, you are a royal priesthood. Every Christian, male or female, is a priest of Almighty God. And we offer up spiritual sacrifices. One of the things we offer, according to Paul, we are to offer God our bodies as a living sacrifice. For what purpose? To bring honor and glory to God. Do you remember what Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have from God? He said, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. He said, in light of that, glorify God in your body and spirit, which are God's. So we have the awesome responsibility of serving as priests in the kingdom of God. We are a priesthood of believers. All right, very quickly. We realize our time's almost gone. Let's note in the third place very quickly his, well, we're going to be talking now about His coming. That is, His coming in glory. Drop down look at verse 7, if you would. And I think about the Lord's return in glory. His coming 
and His conquest. Now John is writing to Christians who are suffering. And in chapter 6 he's writing to people, or he's actually writing about people that had been martyred for the cause of Christ. And to understand that God is still in control, the Lord is still on His throne, and that one day the Lord Jesus will vindicate His people. And so look at verse 7 very quickly. Behold, He's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see Him. They'll also, they also who pierced Him. All tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, amen. In verse 8, He said, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning of the end. Says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And here we're talking about the deity of Christ, aren't we? Drop down and note, if you would, what John said, verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last. He said, what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, as we noted a moment ago. And notice, if you would, John, as he provides a picture for us of deity, in verse 12, he said, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. The lampstands identified by John in verse 20 as the seven churches. And he said, And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. So here you have these congregations of God's people. And John is writing to these congregations, and John is saying that the Lord Jesus is in the midst of His people. Well, would that be true today? Yes. And so in chapters 2 and 3, you have a survey of these seven congregations, which in many respects provide a portrait of congregations today. And so the Lord Jesus is surveying these congregations. Two of these congregations, they escaped all censor. One, nothing good was said. And then there were those that they had some commendable virtues and there were some things that they needed to make right. But the Lord was saying, look, I'm going to come. And if you don't get things right, I'll put, your lamps, I'll put your candlestick out. And so in verse 13, he said, In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet, he said, were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. I, I would take that to mean he's coming in judgment. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, John said, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Now you think about writing to Christians. These Christians, some of God's people, they would ultimately die at the hands of their persecutors. Some, however, would suffer persecution and tribulation. And to know that God is in control. And that God is saying, the Lord is saying to John the Apostle, look, do not be afraid. Now look at verse 18. And the assurance given. Now you know, we put a lot of emphasis on the physical body and I understand why. But John writes, I am he who lives and was dead. Talking about Jesus. 
And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And then he said, I have the keys of what? Of Hades, that is, the unseen world, and death. So the Hadean world claims the spirit or the soul. The grave, the tomb, is the receptacle for the body. But what Jesus is saying is, look, I'm coming. And when I come, I'm going to unlock the doors of the cemetery. And that body and soul will be reunited. The Lord Jesus Christ will come. When He comes, Paul said He's coming to render vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so to understand, as John writes, and John is writing to Christians, trying to encourage them, the overall theme of the book is that God's people will be victorious, come what may. Matter of fact, turn over to chapter 17 very quickly before our time's gone. Look at chapter 17 and listen to what John says concerning the Lamb and His people. In verse 14, he said, These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. Now note, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. Listen, we're serving the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And we have God on our side, don't we? So no matter what happens, we'll be victorious, will we not? And John is writing to Christians and he's saying to them, no matter what your plight may be, no matter how bad the circumstances may seem, if you're a child of God and you maintain faithfulness even in the face of death, you need to understand something. You'll be the winner. That's why in chapter 14, verse 13, he could say, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. And so, when we look around in the world today and you think about the people that were living in the days of John in the first century and the troubles and the trials and the tribulations and the difficulties, and yet God was in absolute control. He has always been in control, has He not? One day we will stand face to face with Jesus. As John said, we'll see Him as He is, for we shall be like Him. So to know as a child of God, ultimately, we're the victors, aren't we? The coming of Christ and the conquest of Christ. You know, I want to be a winner, don't you? The winning side is to be with God and His people. Tonight, if you're here and you're not a Christian, could we encourage you to come to Christ? I would encourage you to think about God's love for you and God's willingness to reach out to a world lost and dying of sin, a world that would include each and every one of us. God has made it possible for us to enjoy the benefits and the blessings of His Son's blood. When we obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, as John said, our sins are washed away. And we're a part of that kingdom, and we serve Him as priests of the Most High God. And we labor and serve Him knowing that there's coming a day when He will reward us. He'll give us that victor's crown, the crown of life that I talked about in Revelation chapter 2, 
at verse 10. So what do you need to do? You need to believe Jesus is the Son of God and then repent of your sins, confess His name, be buried with Him in baptism, die to the love and the practice of sin, be buried with Christ in baptism, let Him wash your sins away, put you in the church, and be faithful. If you're here tonight, you're not what you ought to be, we encourage you to come home. Come back to a loving God who will pardon every sin. You'll be in fellowship with God. You'll have a home in heaven. Won't you come as we stand and sing?